Swan River Radio. Welcome back to Don River Radio. This is episode five, and I'm Dylan Gautier. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be speaking with Elder Catherine Tamarell. First, I want to give a land acknowledgement. We respectfully acknowledge that the sacred lands through which the Don River flows are the traditional territories, homelands, and Nenegat of the respective First Nations, Matisse Nations, and Inuit, who are the longtime stewards of these lands. We acknowledge that Toronto is built on occupied Indigenous territory, the traditional homelands of the Wendat, Patun First Nations, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Tonight I'm recording this intro from Long Island Sound on Fishers Island in New York State, the traditional territory of the Mohegan, Meshantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, and Lenape peoples who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. So for this episode I had the honor of speaking with Elder Catherine Tamaro. Catherine is a multidisciplinary artist whose practice spans decades, genres, and disciplines. She's a seated, spotted Turtle Clan faith keeper and is active throughout the city of Toronto and beyond in many organizations as elder in residence, mentor, teacher, and cultural advisor. She served on the board of the TAC in their Income Precarity Working Group and was the chair of Toronto Arts Council's Indigenous Advisory Committee in 2020-2021. And she's also the Indigenous Arts Program Manager at Toronto Arts Council. So I want to thank Catherine, especially for sharing the audio piece with us, Moonwater, part of a project called Subduction Current about things under the waves, as she puts it. And we're actually going to start off tonight's broadcast with Catherine reading from a chapter she wrote for a book that was edited by Tanya Chung Tamfuk, which was published by Rutledge earlier this year called Sacred Civics, which is about building seven generation cities, uh, new systems and ways of living together in the urban landscape. Here we go. So the last uh, little segment of my chapter in the Sacred Civics book is called Grandmother Toad and Futurity, and it refers to Grandmother Toad who went down and grabbed a handful of earth and brought it up to the back of the turtle so that it could be spread around by a pencil to, uh, to plant the seeds in that she brought from the sky world. Um, and, and we're kind of out of storytelling time, so I won't go too much more into detail there, but um, Grandmother Toad and Futurity, which ceremonies count? Who establishes the rules of conduct in the natural world? Policymakers or earthworkers? Mother Nature herself? Who and where do we turn in moments of climate crisis despair? And how can we practice the honorable harvest when our kin are so distressed? How does one hold that balanced state of reciprocity when burdened with intergenerational grief and trauma? How can we maintain life, not much less living with all we need? And how can we rectify this horrendous loss with healing and recovery? Is a simple address, referring to the Thanksgiving address, enough to start that activation of intentionality towards shifting our understanding of the natural world within the urban landscape? Can we rely on indigenous teachings to take us where we need to be? Are we aware of the scientific and spiritual base of indigenous life ways? Can we start privileging Indigenous reworlding instead of settler legacies for non-settler and Black Indigenous and people of color? How do we reworld this space and all spaces in time to save what we hold so dear? Can you imagine life without turtles, without plant medicines, without those enlightened teachers, without ceremony to honor them? It did not be long before we'd all perish. And yet responsibilities and obligations to decolonize this land 
are largely unknown by most settler folk. There's active resistance toward indigenous bodies taking up space in white dominant paradigms of privilege. It's hard to shake loose that perception of power over when no one wants to give up what little or large power they perceive they may have. Power over nature is a fraudulent and erroneous concept. Indigenous peoples also struggle with these notions in attempts to decolonize themselves and relieve themselves of internalized racism and grief. Some never will. It's a long road heading toward that new and better world for all beings. Do we even dare to dream city civics can be built on a foundational understanding of sacred natural law? Like Grandmother Toad, we must rise with that rich black earth in our little fists, that handful of good earth we cannot let stream through our fingers and wash away. We must hold on tight to raise that vision of reworlding in the newly born sacred civics movement. We must plant the seeds on our governmental bodies and foster them, carry them through to harvest to be put through like ceremony in the next cycle of growth. Policies must be rewritten, compassion must guide us. We must shift the collective mindset from taking all into being thankful, from war into peace, and from commodification into resonance and reverence. We must forego selfishness, greed, and destruction, and not set humans against each other. Speaking truth to power in one great friendship dance, we must circle round and round till we get it right, before all we have is lost to us. This is old news, and these are ancient teachings. We all have something to offer on the path we're forging into new understandings of very old knowledges for the world we must fashion for ourselves and our kin. Grandmother Toad, the ancestors, and the clan mothers from all nations will be our guides. Um, so I thought maybe just to start off, we could talk, uh, I would just ask you to kind of describe your, your practice and your work and maybe starting from your role as elder in residence with Evergreen. Um, how did that come about? That's uh, actually a very interesting question. Let me think back. Well, first of all, let me start by introducing myself in the language of our practice. Okay. So, uh, Tomeshra Ijatsi Ndatijato Ngyaawish Hatiyoronk. Uh, one dot D Toronto Indare. That's pretty simple, and it's my name, uh, which is Tomeshra. My clan, which is the spotted turtle. My nation, which is uh, or my people, who are one dot or Wyandot, and we are part of the Wendat Confederacy. I'm a citizen of the Wyandot of Anderton Nation, which is now located in Michigan, but as at one point was across the river in on the what is now known as the Canadian side. Um, and the people moved back and forth in that region, you know, quite a bit, and also landed there because of the dispersal. So there are four nations in the contemporary Wendat Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat Nation in Quebec, the Wyandotte of Anderton Nation now in Michigan, the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas, and the Wyandotte Nation in Oklahoma. So that's, that's kind of the official stuff. I'm a, I'm a faith keeper. Uh, the Wyandotte word for that is Utrahom. And um, it basically means she holds office. Um, there's another more kind of romantic interpretation from another translator, which is she who holds counsel with the moon. And I actually kind of favor that interpretation, not because it's romantic, but because I believe that it actually refers to our cyclical agricultural ceremonies 
and the way we relate to the, the land and the moon and the celestial spaces. My little clan, the spotted turtle, is involved in our creation story in terms of the fact that she made the heavenly bodies for Atensik, the woman who fell from above. And uh, she did that by carrying around fire and lightning bolts and moving through the sky, creating uh, stars and planets and orbs and things. So she was a maker, um, like me, an artist in her own way, a wonder worker, if you will. And I think perhaps that has something to do with how I ended up at Evergreen. Maybe this is a, a kind of obvious question, but looking at, um, at Evergreen Brickworks, which is, of course, just adjacent to and kind of across you know, road infrastructure and train tracks from the Don and the Don is not exactly there, but I'm, I'm curious if you, you know, have working there in your studio been, been inspired by its proximity to the Don and if the Don has any particular uh, meaning in your work, you know, even, even prior to the work you're, you're doing now. Um, you know, I, I lived in the West End for many years in the city. And so I was kind of much more involved with the Humber than the Don. I mean, uh, High Park was my my father's stomping ground and all his eight sisters that used to walk through to go dancing in the 40s and 50s at the Palais Royale. And being Italian, of course, he would walk them through because that's what Italian young men did was escort their sisters to the dance palace. Um, and so, and I'm involved with High Park as well, uh, working in several different ways and have been for many years. The Don... Uh, the, the story that fascinates me about the dawn is not only the lore about burning bright point and about the fishing techniques and practices that people had. The thing that interests me uh, and that keeps triggering me is how the river was straightened. Um, and I associate that with water snakes. And I'm kind of, um, you know, there's, there's some sort of an idea churning around in there around, you know, changing the shape of a river. And, and, you know, not only what you do to the ecosystem because of that change, but how you change the memory of the land and the water itself, which used to kind of flow in, in a kind of a circumnavigating or a, or a meandering or kind of warbly way, you've taken that and, and altered its course. And, and by doing that, by altering its course, how have you altered the rest of the, the natural environment or the natural world that supports that river system? that watershed. Um, and, and to me, uh, it's not a reductive view because it's, it's so complex, but I think that, you know, as a creative person, the thing that fascinates me about this is the straightening of a river, how one can possibly do that through a river. And I have to tell you, my last name is the name of a river in Italy. So I'm very, um, I'm very river conscious, you know, <laughs> um, but I'm also conscious about the animals that live along the side of the river or within the river and how their world changes when you change or alter the shape. How does their ancestral memory or their genetic memory, how is that affected in terms of how they navigate those waters? Um, and how does it affect their consciousness and the consciousness of all the beings around that watershed? So. Um, as, as cities are built up, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about a little bit in terms of sacred civics. How can you get to this place of uh, respecting the land for what the land is and, um, and the waters for what the waters are? And uh, as living beings, you know, 
when we, when they took the var of samples at Crawford Lake, I suggested a small ceremony for the woman, the indigenous woman who was working with them, the scientist Monica Garvey on the team, because I wanted to honor that opening and closing of the lake. Um, and it, you know, kind of insisted that they make sure that it was closed after they finished. Like any good kind of ceremonial space, you have to finish what you've started, right? And you have to do it in a good way. I guess uh, in terms of the development of the Dom, my hope is that, you know, it's accompanied by all the right kinds of ceremony. You know, I'm not a civic leader. I can't stop that kind of development by just raising my hand and saying, don't go there or don't do this. But if it's done in a responsible way, um, honoring the land and honoring the beings that reside in the land and the ancestors that reside in the land, uh, there might be, you know, who are imbued in the land, there may be a way to do this in, in, a, in a less harmful way. I keep yeah. thinking of the water snake shedding its skin and, um, and the twists and turns of a river that's been straightened. If I could ask you to speak a little bit about what your role at Evergreen is and what it means to be an uh, elder in residence. Um, my role there is um, elder in residence. Um, <clears throat> they wanted to engage the Indigenous community in uh, ways that they hadn't uh, prior to my arrival there. They wanted someone who was on site, more or less, um, and involved with the Indigenous community in town and also uh, within the spaces. My cousin, Isaac Crosby, is from the Ojibwa of Anderton, and he's the lead hand there, the horticultural specialist or indigenous earth worker. Um, and there are other indigenous folks working there um, as well, uh, April and, and so many wonderful people. Um, so they invited me in and I had, uh, you know, a series of conversations with them about what I could do or what I felt I might be able to do, which was to help um, shape and form the way in which they related to uh, indigenous community, respecting protocols from different communities, um, and finding a process to make sure that the indigenous members who work there are, um, how shall we say this, felt safe and protected and, um, and heard and listened to, and also help Evergreen to um, liaise with the outer world in terms of, you know, uh, assisting with projects that they might have, um, mentoring younger Indigenous folks who are on site, um, working with the children in various programs occasionally um, as an artist and also holding art workshops and also uh, holding uh, workshops to help train staff in Indigenous awareness, if you will. Um, so how to deal with Indigenous folks, how to respect Indigenous protocols, learning about ceremony, learning about our relationship to the natural world, learning about um, all the, the diversity in Indigenous nations, and not that every Indigenous person thinks the same way or is the same as every other Indigenous person, of course. Um, Toronto is filled with Indigenous people from different places, um, not only Turtle Island, but also uh, uh, way down south and in other, from other parts of the world. Um, who have relocated here, and of course the descendants of people who were brought here against their will, all of those 
uh, folks um, end up coming through Evergreen or you know, many participate in events that happen there. It's a very lively place. So I'm, I'm, I'm there in, um, in a couple of, you know, in a few different capacities. And I also have a studio there, which means that I get to work on the projects that I'm involved with in other places in that space, which is fantastic. I mean, it's a, it's a major bonus of the, of the position, if you will, or the situation. And, and where is your uh, where is your studio located on the Evergreen site? Uh, it's it's in the um, uh, building twelve on the fourth floor, <laughs> um, and it's very secure, which is lovely. Um, I feel very safe there. Um, it's a very well taken care of space, and um, I was in a in a different room, a much larger room actually, which kind of felt too big for me because. Uh, COVID really didn't allow me to utilize the space in the way I wanted to, which was to allow and encourage other Indigenous artists to come in and work on the show I was working on, and also to be in the space in community. Uh, so um, uh, we kind of turned that room over to the staff, and I've taken the smaller room next door, which actually feels a bit more intimate and a bit more like, you know, like it would be the kind of studio that I might have at home or in, you know, in a warehouse, smaller and um, more compact and, and more intimate, which is good. I can actually see what I'm doing. <laughs> Whereas in the other room, I had to kind of walk down the length of the room and around a corner to get to the easel, which was, you know, it was great, but it, it meant that I couldn't look at the painting in process. It, it, it does distance you from your work if you, if you can't actually see it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I imagine or I understand. Um, and have in in this you know in this moment, are you able to have people uh, visit, come in, and 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 be in in community with with your work as it's ongoing? Yeah. Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, with the project that I'm working on right now, um, I've um, employed, uh, if if you will, several folks to um, assist with the project because it's a big project. And I also, it's also a teaching opportunity um, and a learning exchange for people. Uh, so the project, uh, you probably saw the graphic on my, um, on my splash page, as it were, here. And um, it's called Fire Over Water. And it is a, an exhibition which is opening on June the 18th at Crawford Lake. And it's to, it was inspired by uh, Catherine LaBelle's book, The Daughters of Atensic for which she engaged um, an Indigenous Advisory Council. Uh, and I was one of her Advisory Council members, recommended by the chief um, at Anderton. Uh, she got in touch with all the chiefs in the four different nations, and they recommended two, two women each to go and work with her. So we all tripped out to Saskatoon in 2013 and started our process then, and it's culminating now in 2022, many, many years later uh, in this show and uh, the book's been published, uh, which is great. And is about to be published in French, which is fabulous. Amazing, um, congratulations. And um, I wondered if, uh, if you could tell me a little bit more about, um, about the project and you work in such a variety of different media and formats. Um, how does it all come together in this, uh, in this particular work? Well, that's, <laughs> that's such a great question. And it's so nice to be asked about my work. I, I appreciate it. Um, I'm a multidisciplinary artist. Uh, I, I go where inspiration leads me uh, and I 
express myself uh, musically, um, in writing, uh, in painting, in assemblage, uh, and in soundscapes and other kind of sound-related forms. So the, the sound um, part of this project to start off with will kind of embrace the viewer as they move through the experience of the, the exhibit, which will be happening in the Deer Clan Longhouse. Um, it's, it's actually going to be a space within a space because there will be a video playing as well, which I made uh, up at Crawford Lake Call Fire Over Water, which is the title of the show. And that has its own soundtrack. I'm working with a man named Jeff Howard, who's an amazing uh, digital alchemist. And Jeff is uh, the lead tech at Chorus Entertainment. He's, he was a dear friend. He, well, he is a dear friend of mine, but he was a, my husband's uh, main collaborator. Uh, my husband uh, passed away in 2018 and Jeff and he were like brothers and they worked together for 40 years. So Jeff and I are continuing to work together, which is just great. And he's been amazingly helpful at helping me construct these two sound envelopes, if you will, so that the, the sound in the video will be embraced by the larger sound in the, in the space. Sound is so incredibly important in terms of um, oral teachings and transmissions in terms of the songs we create and the vocables that we use in those songs, but also in terms of, um, you know, of course, setting an environment and uh, a mood and atmosphere, if you will. And then within that uh, sound envelope or those two envelopes will be um, a series of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paintings um, and, uh, and six small installations in lucite boxes and then uh, a head the head painting um, which is the cover actually of Catherine Miguel, uh, McGee LaBelle's book um, is called Huronia Sky World View and much like the one that had head people like head women or head men either clan mothers or chiefs this exhibit has a head painting, and that's the head painting. And under that is a piece called The Bead Spitter, which refers to one of our narratives. Um, and at Crawford Lake, uh, the story is fascinating. I mean, the work is, is pretty multifaceted. Uh, it's being studied by uh, Professor Francine McCarthy from Brock and a number of other people, who are, you know, the people who are working with her, um, by withdrawing core samples from the bottom of the lake. Those core samples are called VARVES, V-A-R-V-E-S, and they are actually uh, a record of the sediment, uh, sedimentary um, information that is um, uh, available to be analyzed by the scientists. And in that space uh, along the VARVES, they look like cylinders um, with brown, you know, multicolored brown striations. Um, they have found, uh, um, it's, it's kind of like tree rings. They can tell the age of the lake. They can tell when people inhabited the lake. They can tell that there was corn pollen that drifted into the lake from the indigenous people's use of it. Um, Francine jokes about uh, one of the lakes she's worked on where there was goose poop. Uh, because once the lake, be once the, the woodlands opened up because of people clearing some of the forests away to grow corn, the geese would land 
and they would relieve themselves in the lake and then that that material would drop down to the bottom and get you know and become part of the sedimentary layers of the lake so you can read the history of the lake in this barb and what i've done is um taken one of our uh, oral stories which to me suggested that same kind of um ecology which was this notion of an old woman sitting in a canoe who was spitting beads out of her mouth. There's a, there's a, a narrative that goes along with that, but the, the beads kind of fall to the bottom of the lake into her blouse, the canoe, et cetera. And to me, they represented the diatoms and the chrysophytes and all the little beings that are in the lake water. And so they've been woven into striations and, uh, and they look like a wampum belt. Uh, which looks like a varve, which is a conversation between the old woman and the lake through my ancestral memory. And the, the weft and the warp of the weaving are transparent to me, which represents that beautiful ancestral memory and time. But then, of course, it has to sit within the water. So it's sitting in uh, a museum-style box, which is made out of lucite, and it's filled with lake water, and it's on a black plinth or a, a stand. So it kind of suggests that rarefied atmosphere of study and research, but also um, kind of mm, scrutiny, if you will, of indigenous life, of indigenous life ways and stories, of our narratives, of our uh, collective memories, and our relationships with water, which, of course, are incredibly important and how that how the water has changed how the sediment in the lake has changed it's a miramictic lake so there's that miramixis process which means that there's not as much oxygen at the bottom of the lake as there is at the top uh, which is why all that sediment sits there undisturbed for so long but anyway there's that piece and then there's a number of other pieces which refer to various aspects of the women's relationship to the land and water across the confederacy so everywhere we were dispersed to you know we have relationships with the land there as women because it was primarily women's work to cultivate the land so the the piece is fire over water is um it's about community in the center of every community is the fire in the middle of, you know, for us, the longhouse. It's the place where the families would gather. It's the place where stories would be told. It's the place where community uh, perhaps was held in the most intimate way. Um, and it sits on top of the lake. So actually what we did, I mean, I can go on and on about this stuff. <laughs> for hours but i um i had an experience 29 years ago on uh, knowlton lake in um, kingston ontario where i put my foot into a canoe for the first time and at that very moment uh, it began to kind of crystallize notions that i had had that i might have indigenous blood we had uh, an uncertain familial line in our family and we were able to trace that um, through my pushing constantly for years and years and years. And finally, we came to the, the discovery and the conclusion that we were Wyandotte people. Uh, my mother had been adopted. So, um, so we did, you know, kind of carry some of that intergenerational uh, grief uh, around not knowing our heritage. And then 
uh, were completely kind of, I'm going to use the word sanctified, even though that's a Christian word mm -hmm. um, in this context within our, within our relationship with our people, it, it became, it became uh, known to us who we were. So that experience of putting my foot in a canoe was a pivotal kind of point for me. And to honor that canoe and that moment and that feeling sp uh, space or state that I was in, I asked a young student that I was working with if he would go out and find me a canoe. Go find me a red canoe, I asked him. Well, it turns out that he went out and found a vintage Wendat canoe made probably in the 40s in Wendaki by the brothers Bastien, which is a very well-known family in Wendaki, a Wendat family, came back to High Park at that point with this canoe. Actually, two friends went to pick it up. And um, uh, one, my cousin. And um, I was absolutely um, entranced and blown away. So that, that canoe was put on the lake and had a fire in the middle of it. And how I made that happen, I'm not going to tell you. But I will tell you that we did have a firekeeper and we did follow indigenous protocols around firekeeping and turned that into a video. So we have paintings, we have installations, we have actually some of the land from the various places across the Confederacy. We have the ways in which that has inspired me through, um, through narratives like the bead spitter and uh, concepts like fire over water. Um, I have a, a kind of a rewritten shuffle dance, which is kind of a modern disco-y kind of tune. And I had visions of all of our faith keepers kind of boogieing around the longhouse to this new modern kind of vocable thing, which I thought would be lovely. I mean, traditions come and go and change and morph into other things sometimes. There are people have bring fresh eyes to, to, um, to ways in which they are together. And uh, the music kind of celebrates that. So again, it's painting, it's assemblage. There's a lot contained in the assemblage um, without going into too much detail. Again, it refers to place and people and sentiments and, and uh, includes aspects of the natural world that have been kind of, um, some of them have been altered a bit. Uh, for example, I have a, a, a turtle shell, uh, which is uh, kind of lined with beaver fur. It's not really a copy of Merritt Oppenheim's piece, the, the Cup and Saucer, but yeah. rather it's called Alliance. And it talks about the, the ways in which different um, cousins, relatives, animals ref refer to or relate to each other. There's a piece that honors the clan mothers uh, called Matriarch. And there is a, a piece which is a, a Jesuit cassock. Uh, it's called Flying Churches. And uh, the one, one dot translation for the Wyandotte translation is he, he, they go about laying song all over the land kind of thing. And it refers to this notion of uh, the relationship between the Wendat and the, the Jesuits and how it um, was difficult and painful and for some comforting and enlightening and for some torturous and difficult, uh, you know, the history of Brebeuf and, and his cohorts um, in uh, up around St. Marie is a very, you know, came to a very unpleasant end for, for Brebeuf. I wanted to refer to that relationship and its complexity. So I've made a piece that kind of, that talks about that. 
that talks about the, the difficulties and also the comfort. So, you know, there are a lot of energetic connections in this show as well as, um, as well as uh, kind of pictured or imagined uh, references to spaces. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty deep. It's pretty complex. It's, um, it's been a, a long labor that involved me traveling across the Confederacy three times to kind of collect uh, images to refer to and samples and conversations with elders and community members. And, and of course, working in this beautiful advisory committee with all of these wonderful women, my sisters from across the Confederacy. Incredible. Such a such a rich and beautiful project, and again, um, such texture. And I hope that uh, you know, if if possible, I wonder if we might all contact you about this after we talk. But maybe if there's some audio that we might share as part of this, um, I'd love to share some of that. As you were talking about the kind of the two envelopes, which I love thinking of the the sound of the film and the sound of the space. Um, well, I could I could share a, a little bit with you. Uh, right now if you're open to that this piece is called uh, moon water song and it talks about actually crawford lake and i actually did this for the last show there in 2017 which was called amea which means on the water uh which looked at again time and ancestral memory and i had 13 very large digital collages uh photo-based digital collages printed on plexiglass because i love this notion of transparency and the spirit world and, you know, kind of the unseen or things that are partially seen uh, or partially remembered. And uh, the song or the piece was about, um, it says, you know, I see my sisters, they're, they're kind of walking down to the shoreline. I, I see them standing and offering up songs to, to Grandmother Moon. The lake is, is so beautiful and Grandmother Moon is so beautiful and they're they're all connected. The lake, my sisters, the moon, that they, they are, they're one. And I am one with all of them. And I walk into the water. And so it's in uh, the, the act of walking into the water was supposed to reflect a change of consciousness and a recognition of timelessness, ancestral memory, and um, and the moon, of course, and women's connecting to, to those spaces. So I'll see if it plays. I'm not sure if it will or not, but Let's give it a try. Oma shuta aya a kwasti, yato ya nyanguanya kwi, nduta sete kwa atayo, ayatasku. Ayatraswa, sawatandishrisha, ayayen akwajatisha. Oma shuta aya akwasti, yom tarawasti. Imanonte, aya rom. Awati ya aha, ya yonorom kwanyong. Ayatom yom tarawasti. Undatrandut, awati ya aha, yom tarawasti. 
omashuta aya akoste yatoya nyangwanya kwi nduta sete ko atayo aya tasko Really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really, I'm really spellbound by this work and really the the intricacy and layering. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm kind of asking this as a very open ended kind of reflection on some of what you were sharing. Um, but I'm fascinated this idea of core samples and um, this idea of you know sort of seeing down into into an earlier time and pulling out the stories of those times by seeing who was there uh, is truly just fascinating and, and really beautiful that you've incorporated that into your work. Is, is part of that, I mean, do you have a sense of sort of how, how deep in time or how far back those core samples are looking in a... Yeah, I, I seem to remember something about five or 600 years at least um, because the village um, at Crawford Lake was inhabited in the 15, what we think of as the 1500s. And um, it was a layered village. So at one point, the Adewanderon were there. At one point, the Wendat were there. But, you know, one has to also understand that these people mixed through time. And eventually, the, the, the Tianantate people, the Petun, uh, the Adewanderon and the Wendat, all, and the Erie and the Wenro, as, as the Wendat traveled and dispersed, um, kind of uh, co-mingled with, with various folks and ended up re-emerging as the Wyandotte, right? So that's kind of that story. But I, I think the samples go back, you know, at least 500 years because the village was inhabited in, in the 1500s. And they noted the original samples that were taken, they found corn pollen in them. And that was what suggested to them that they should do archaeological research up on the, the knoll, as it were, up top in where the village is and uh and they found the footprints of i think it was 11 longhouses um and then they did the reconstruction so there are three longhouses that have been rebuilt and then there's a fourth that's outlined on the original post uh post holes if you will it's also a conflict free zone they found no evidence of conflict in this space and there's also a grinding stone there that's quite old, maybe, well, the stone, of course, is very old, but I think that they've suggested that uh, women were grinding corn on that stone up to a thousand years ago. So we did a presentation at the ROM yesterday where uh, the varve was, was given to the ROM, and I showed an image of, of the work of the Beads Bitter Peace, which, as it turns out, um, there may be a, more than one nation that kind of has that as one of its narratives which is very interesting. And, and I've heard of that before and found that before that um, different people will have different um, interpretations of a very similar story. Of course, certainly in uh, the Haudenosaunee people and the Wyandot um, have many of the same narratives uh, on the Wendat. Um, this, one of the things that fascinated me about the, the beads bitter idea and beads and breath is that um, apparently, in many indigenous cultures, beads and breath are associated. And that's how we managed to make the connection between the beads as the basis of the ecosystem. So the bead spitter is actually, she, she is a creator in her, in her way, a maker too, right? A wonder worker, as I like to refer to her. Um, but in terms of marshland, 
you know, that's very interesting too, because the Anderton Reserve, the old Anderton Reserve was, was all marshland at one point, and that land was turned into very workable land by the indigenous people who lived there. Um, Isaac Crosby's family, the earth worker at Evergreen, um, his family is Ojibwa, and they lived on the Anderton Reserve next to the Wyandots, and they were all farmers. My, my great-great-grandfather, James Leslie, was a farmer uh, in Harrow, I believe, uh, which is right around there. Uh, and they all worked with that marshland. Um, and the marshland has incredible teachings for us. And the marshland is also filled with water guardians. I mean, those plants are there for a reason. They're there to protect the watershed. You know, they clean, they filter, they they stop the soil from eroding. They they have their original instructions, just like every other being on the planet, whether they're plant kin or animal relatives, they all have things to do. And, and we keep changing their story, which, you know, I'm not so sure is, uh, is the best idea uh, a lot of the time. Elder Catherine, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me tonight and to um, speak about your work. Thank you very much. I, it's a pleasure to, um, to have hung out with you for an hour ago. <laughs> this is Don River Radio. I'm Dylan Gautier. Our collective is Mari Liberum. You can find us at thefreeseas.org. Our project is dawnriverradio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks in Waterfront, Toronto, and supported by Artworks TO Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Music by John Tarr. Special thanks to our collaborators Shannon Gerard and Maria Hupfield, curators Charlene Lau, Chloe Catan, and Carrie Swinar. <laughs>